Hey, what's up, good people, man? You are tuning into another episode of Fatherhood is Dope, the podcast. It's your guy, Aaron McGee. Man, I'm always excited that you decided to join us again for another amazing conversation. Today, I have a special guest, per usual, because all of them are special, but because he's on today, he's special, special. Uh, y'all say what's up to my guy, Keith White. Keith is in uh, attorney and entertainment attorney, uh, a, a manager, a husband, and the thing that qualifies him the most, and I think what makes him special, special, is that he is a father to how many daughters? Five. Five. <laughs> Five amazingly beautiful daughters. I've been all up on your Instagram page all week, man. Uh, just, just admiring. Uh, all of the beauty. So, Keith, welcome to the podcast. Hey, man. Thanks for having me, and I, I appreciate I'm, I'm honored to be here. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, for sure, man. So, Keith, man, you really got put on my radar because uh, we we have a mutual, my friend, I think I think he calls you friend, too, because we have a mutual friend who, who man, he knows I, I do the podcast and just has raved about you as a dad. He knows you from the entertainment space, you know, you guys are, you guys have been on the road together and that, um, uh, traveling with artists and we can get into that. But the thing that stuck out the most to him about you is your posture and position as a dad. He's like, man, every time we're on the road, he's always talking about stories about his daughters, about his wife, about, you know, things that he wants to do for them or things that he's already done for them. And so, man, let's just crack that case open, man. You know, what did you did you always know that you wanted to be a father? And considering you're a father of five girls, how do you even approach? How do you approach fatherhood? So I, I think that I've always wanted to be a father um, because I've had very strong male leads in my life. Right. My yeah. dad. Um, my dad has served as my father, but also as my best friend for the last, you know, I'm 40, I'm 44. So the last 44 years, right? So that's, to me, a lot of my social cues around fatherhood and manhood come from my dad. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. So, I mean, I think that I've always wanted to be a father. Now, being a father of five is one skill set. Being a father of five young women is a whole other um is a whole other conversation i think that um in some respects i think it's my high honor right like hey we're giving you the responsibility of um of guiding providing and and um and also learning from five women but at the same time um it also could be karma you know from you know running around as a young <laughs> right. As a young dude, completely reckless, yeah. reckless, reckless with with a lot of things mm-hmm. and then having to come into the reality of, of how I show up in the world in the face of my daughter. Yeah, man, that's challenging. You know, I, every time, particularly. So I'm a girl dad and mm-hmm. I feel like like when do we get the opportunity to kind of switch, switch the our point of reference because most dudes do that man we we always feel like it's this this sense of karma when we have girls you know so we 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 go back to like our body counts and stuff and i'm like but women don't say that when they have boys you know honestly i'm not even talking about my body count because honestly my body count wasn't even anything like wasn't even anything crazy okay it was really when i say when i say karma i mean how I showed up in the world, right? Like we, I think that men, um, we, we, I think that we exist with a certain level of privilege in the world. And I think that many times we are blind to that, right? We have blind spots in our own privilege because we spend so much time talking about white supremacy, capitalism, corporate infrastructure. We spend so much time talking about systemic issues but one of the things that we, we often kind of neglect is where, um, how empowered or unempowered women are in these conversations. And I think that having daughters put that at the forefront for me because I was like, yeah, 
I'm ra I'm not raising suckers. I'm raising leaders. I'm I'm raising people who are going to be disruptive to the status quo, and I find it difficult to operate in spaces, or I find it difficult to watch them operate in spaces where they're often neglected or left to be invisible because they're women, particularly black women. Yeah, that's good. So I appreciate it because so now, thank you for that because that's a completely, totally different lens of even as black men, what I hear you saying is that, you know, we, we do have to acknowledge our privilege, our male privilege. Right. Um, and, you know, my wife and I, we had these conversations all the time where she'll hear me make uh, a comment based on a show or something we will be watching. And I didn't realize that I was speaking from a place of privilege. And she was like, but you have a wife, you have a mom, you have a daughter. And I'm like, oh, word, I get that. And so to your point, um, I'm actually, I'm actually, uh, I appreciate you saying that because I'm taking it in even in this moment to realize that, you know, we, we, we carry these banners of, you know, bringing down X, Y, and Z, but how, what am I doing right now as a dad that's right. going to, outside of, you know, providing and being the priest of my home and protecting, but what am I doing from a civic perspective uh, and culture perspective that really, you know, is going to make it that much easier for my daughter? I think we, and we, and we do have that responsibility. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, you know, I think that we have a responsibility to make all of the unfair structures and systems uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think, that, um, you know, it's, 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 it's even, even when it comes to parenting, right? Like we have a parenting privilege in the sense that we're, you know, oftentimes, you know, whatever I'm feeling throughout the day or feeling throughout from work or feeling from the world, right? Um, oftentimes our families become our punching bags because we're like, they're the people that are closest to us and we can tell kids to do something, right? And it doesn't necessarily have to make sense all the time. And now my conversations with my kids, especially my teenagers, they're like, no, that's not fair. That doesn't make, that doesn't make any sense. And we can have comprehensive conversations about fairness and equity in the household. So now everything that I'm out here in the street preaching about, right, in terms of like white supremacy, um, Black Lives Matter, all of these things that I'm doing, I have to model it in my home first. Because if I don't model fairness, equity, and comprehensive dialogue in my home, then it won't resonate anywhere else. Yeah. Facts, man. I just have a toddler who's three, but I should have even said just because she's taking in so much, she's able to comprehend a lot. And, and, and I know that the actions that I have toward her, now you have me thinking about these frivolous moments that I say, just go back upstairs for a minute and I'll be up there where, you know, but it's, it's in, in so many ways it's for not, and it's my parenting privilege that's, that's really speaking. So I'm already called out. Um, this conversation is not going good for me <laughs> already. Keith, I mean, so you, you, you're the privileged father of five amazing daughters. And, you know, man, as I read about you online and see, you know, what you have going on on social media, I'm really trying to figure out, I'm really trying to figure out how. When I say how, like, how, how do you have the capacity to do some of these things that you're doing? Like I was looking at, um, I have like three things that stuck out and as it relates to your civic engagement, but you have the girls education mentoring service services that you're a part of. You're on that board. Yeah, I'm on the board. I was, a, I was the chairman. Um, and then I took some years off, but I'm still on the board. Yeah. So then you got, you have Kings against violence initiative. And then is this the Brooklyn combine? Yeah. The Brooklyn combine, you know, so, Honestly, I, I said, I'm not going to pull it all. Like this brother is, you, you're civically engaged, civically plugged in. Um, I'm sure like your, your social IQ is there clearly as it relates to what's happening across the country. But what's even more importantly, and some people miss the mark on this, is what's happen, happening locally. Um, and that's evident just as you, if, if you do a quick Google search on you, you can see that. And so just with, I know how that can pull on you. I ran for school board board here in Nashville because we got a school that's right here behind my home. 
and based on and I ran a nonprofit as an executive director and CEO for almost five years. So I know how taxing it can be to stay engaged, stay in the loop. But I only have one one daughter and you know, and I'm and that's that's a lot for me to manage even at, you know at, as she's three. So I'm looking at you like how? That's my question. How are you getting it all done, man? Where where are you finding that balance? It's all community. It's all community. So I can say, so for, for um, the Girls Education and Mentoring Network, that is, it's called GEMS. That's an anti-sex trafficking organization. And there are, it's, it's, it's the founder and executive director, Rachel Lloyd. She's an amazing survivor um, of the life. And she's literally going around grabbing young women off the street and finding services for them and working through um, the criminal justice system to decriminalize, um, uh, to decriminalize these women who are being trafficked. They're being, they're being victimized and being prosecuted. And so she's doing that work. We have an amazing staff um, of almost 100 people. We have an incredible board. So that's, it's community. That's a, that's a team effort, right? I, I get to be a part of, I'm honored to be a part of that team. With regards to CAVI, Kings Against Violence Initiative, that's Dr. Rob Gore. He's the founder and executive director. I'm the vice chair of that board. And we do um, restorative justice work. We go into hospitals. We find victims of violence. And instead of um, allowing them to work through cycles where they perpetuate the violence that's been enacted upon them, we work through the trauma to, to, to get them to a place of healing. And again, that's an, we have an incredible board and incredible staff. Um, and we're working through several schools. And so that's in partnership. And so that's that. And then with the Brooklyn Combine, the Brooklyn Combine, there's 11 of us. Yeah. And so there's 11 of us. And um, some of us are attorneys, some of us are creatives, and we work in community. It's, 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 really, um, it's really been an incredible experience to be in community with really incredible partners. And so I'm allowed to do that, but I'm, 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 I'm privileged to be in these spaces and work in these spaces because I have community. Same thing with my home. I, we have five daughters, but it absolutely has to be a partnership between my wife and I. My wife is a doula and a business owner herself. And so we have to work in tandem and partnership and doing all these things. I think so early on in my career and in my life, I was working in silos yeah. and I would just be like, in a box, just kind of like working. And when I would make mistakes, I wouldn't know I made a mistake. And so I would compound, right? I would compound a mistake with another mistake. And I found myself kind of like drowning, making mistakes, almost fatal. And so um, when, when I had the cataclysmic moment in my life where I was like, things have to change, I was like, I need to work in community. And yeah. when, I, when I began to work in community, um, you know, I just began, to be really part of these really impactful organizations. Sorry to talk your head off, but yeah. It's a podcast, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> this is my job, Keith. If right, you stop talking, like if you stop talking, I don't have any work to do, man. I'm like, uh, <laughs> well, Keith, it was fun while it lasted. <laughs> oh man, that's, that's powerful. Uh, you know, I'm always challenged. Um, you know, well, first of all, uh, mad respect to you. I, I understand and I know firsthand the amount of engagement, especially you talking about volunteer roles, too. You have you have your your main your sources, your sources of income that you have to manage and their priority. They need you. And then you go over here and you give yourself in some capacities even more, you know, being fully engaged to these places that are volunteer that you're serving on as board, board member, board chair, vice chair, whatever, in a volunteer capacity, man, and to show up with that type of zeal, I think it takes a special type of person. It takes a special type of person to work in a nonprofit, first of all. But then when you get an engaged person, like it seems like you are, you know, that's a whole nother level. I always say, if I'm hearing from someone like you, man, I dream about board members like you that, that know how to uh, actively and responsibly advocate for our mission. And I also think that the, the sweet part, man, is that you get to work with not just any executive director, but the founders and executive director of two nonprofits, which, you know, their grind is, 
is completely different. I was an ED where I inherited an organization from uh, the founder and he stayed on board. But as hard as I work, you know, it's just it's different. It's, it's different. It, it is. And, and, and that's what founder led, founder led founder led um, organizations um, have have a very special special thing in their DNA. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 instructive because you know how to approach that nonprofit, but in sometimes sometimes it can be destructive because founders become crazy, right? Like they do, um, and it's it's almost it's almost it's almost expected and it's almost necessary to be crazy about the cause because when you're the founder of an organization, a nonprofit organization that is on the that is that is on the the front line of an of an issue. You are, you're responsible for holding the ideological lines, right? And so holding the ideological lines means making unpopular decisions that aren't necessarily going to be popular, but you'll be on the right side of history. And mm-hmm. I say that because in, in the organizations where I serve, particularly gyms, there have been entertainers who have wanted to come and do very forward-facing external facing activations and say, yes, I'm part of gyms. I support gyms. I've given gyms money. And gyms has said, and gyms is, is, is operating in excess of $10 million a year, right? So it's not, a, it's not necessarily a very small nonprofit. Yeah. But, um, but operating at that budget is hard to turn down money. Yeah. But gyms, our founder and executive director has absolutely turned down <clears throat> six-figure checks from people who would you would think that they're um they're not problematic in terms of their pr but they're on the wrong side of an issue in terms of you know she's holding the ideological line and saying that um we don't call um women who are human who are, who are trafficked we don't call them prostitutes mm-hmm. we don't use that language our language is very intentional they are trafficked women and yeah. i think that there's a like so, so she's very strong on policy. Um, and some people might feel like it's the extreme, but it's because she has to be. She has yeah. to hold that line because if she doesn't hold that line, nobody else is going to hold that line. And yeah. that's the tough part about founder-led um, nonprofit organizations. You say they have to hold the ideological line. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I, I feel like I can pose this question to you in terms of, because when I see you doing all of this, I feel like you're holding this ideological line of fatherhood and really holding this banner high, right? But, and really showing us the way. So I guess what I'm getting at is, what I want people to see with you is that, like, it's all possible, right? And so even even with you holding this, this front line of fatherhood, showing you know doing being civically engaged doing these things in entertainment uh what do you believe drives that and a lot of people i'm not going to answer it for you i was going to give you my perspective but let me hear from you what what do you think drives it for you um i mean i feel like i wake up excited every morning to do what i do i'm i'm incredibly blessed in that sense that i get to go to court try cases and fight against bad ideas. And then I get, to, I get to be a part of policy, driving policy change. And then I get to spend- That's all in the court. That's, that's in court. And then when I get out of court, I get to go to an office where I'm pushing policy. I'm working with um, nonprofits. I'm working with legislators to work, to, 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 change, to change the world. And then I get to come home, right? And I get to talk about that work with my kids, with my wife. Then I get to go to bed and do it all over again. So I wake up, I wake up excited about what I do. Now, when it comes to the music stuff, I've, I've pivoted. So yeah, I used to be very heavy into music because that was, that, that's a passion for me. Um, music is still a passion for me, but um, I'm not, I don't operate in the management space anymore. That's too time consuming and I'm 44 years old. I'm not going to be running around with an artist trying to get them to take my advice. Right. Yeah. Um, 
So I only, I, I only practice entertainment law and I limit my practice. So now I don't do um, record deals where, where artists are signing over their masters. I have, a, I have a, an ideological policy in my office where I only represent artists who are going to own their labor. If they're not owning their labor and the fruits of their labor, I'm not doing a deal. So, um, so that limits, you know, that limits what that limits, you know, my my activity in the entertainment space because that's a liberation ideology that not everybody is necessarily subscribing to. Man, talk to us, Keith. Like, so where where does this mindset come from? So, was this always the case, or you used the word pivot? Okay, so you so that there was an awakening. Like, what's what's going on over here, man? So, give give me just a little bit more backdrop on you working in the industry or in that management space. Cause I, I had that you were a former manager cause you know, I was tapping into my sources and they was like, nah, he don't manage no more. He just, did. you know, and so <laughs> how did the pivot come about? And can you give us, us just a little backdrop into um, just being in that entertainment space? So, um, so yeah, so, so I, when I was managing artists in like 2000 and, for 2005, um, maybe before that, like probably probably 2003, but I didn't actually like really do anything, like get somebody signed. Were um, you already an attorney at this point? Yeah, I was an attorney. I became an attorney in 2001. Okay. So, um, but I was um, I was in the DA's office. I was a prosecutor. Mm -hmm. I did that for a few years. Sorry. So let me let me go back. When I was in undergrad, I worked at Rockefeller back in 1995, I worked at Rockefeller Records um, before they were with Def Jam. I worked at Mercury Records when I was in college as well, and I worked at Polygram. Um, and then I went to law school. When I was in law school, um, you know, I didn't do anything entertainment-wise because I wanted to be a litigator. I wanted to know how to try a case in court. And so I wanted to be able to be the type of attorney that, you know, if I said something, if I said I was going to sue you, it was serious. So that's what I did. And then um, a few years out of the DA's office, um, you know, my passion for music never went away. So I started, um, I started managing some artists. I had an artist get signed to Atlantic Records. I had an artist, I had writers do publishing deals with Universal uh, Universal Music Group. And then I had, you know, had some artists do some deals. And it didn't really, they didn't really like pop off, right? The way that I had wanted or expected them to. But what I learned about from what I learned about that experience is that um, the music industry um, or the music business, I should say, the music business um, is like a fraternity. And, you know, being in that fraternity requires you to give something in exchange. Mm -hmm. And some of the things that you give up in exchange are values, very personal values. And for a time, there was a time where I gave up my values to be, you know, to be in this space. Yeah. But I saw that it wasn't worth it. And it didn't yield the thing that I thought that it would yield to me in terms of power, money, and these things. And so I reclaimed my values and I said, I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm, you know, whether, whether it worked for me or not, who knows, but I'm gonna operate from this perspective. And so that was like maybe 2010, right? 2009, 2009, 2010, um, I, you know, I, I started operating differently. And then I met, um, I met, you know, uh, a few artists who whose values were in alignment with mine, and we actually did some we did some good business. I managed a little bit, maybe until about 2015. Um, I did some management, and then I was like, you know what? Um, being a manager really is a young person's game at this point. Somebody has got to have the energy and the time to run around and be in spaces, and also try, you know, look cool. I'm like. I'm not interested in looking cool yeah. or trying to, trying to be cool at this point. I'm interested um, in some other things. I think my interests scale. And so um, 
and then it, it just became a constant kind of like a constant my constant search to reclaim my values or find what I value find what I what I think is important and really be in alignment do things execute and act and and conduct myself in a way that is in alignment with my values and that's where I find peace when I'm in alignment with my values the things that I value in my in my conduct I'm at peace and when I'm not I'm not at peace and so you know that that really kind of was the driving force in some of the changes that I made so you're saying this pivot happened close to 2010 and you just 2010 2010 i um i was having a professional crisis i was having a personal crisis um you know at 34. yeah i was at a crossroads yeah man hey you give me hope man uh i don't know what's (laughs) to come but it sounds like you've kind of flipped the script and you you know you you're you're carving out the path that you want for yourself. And as I'll be 34 uh, next month. So I'm like, I'm taking notes over here, man. You know, cause I'm still, I'm still after my preferred future. And I think that is, is really powerful, man. When, um, cause I, I, in, in the grand scheme of things, 33 and 44 is still young in the grand scheme of things. Uh, but it's, but it's still pretty powerful you know, to be able to latch on to your values at an age like that, especially coming out of this whirlwind of the music business and in industry that you're referring to. I think that's powerful. I just wanted to speak to that because I know dads out here who are chasing, chasing things that's not always associated with the entertainment industry or the entertainment business, but just chasing ideas and um, goals and dreams. And, you know, you capture something and you realize that, Man, I sacrificed a lot, left a lot out, gave a lot of myself, and it didn't yield what I wanted it to yield. So just wanted somebody to hear it, man, um, just from your perspective. I I stopped chasing things, and I started becoming things. Like, that was the thing for me. I was like, yo, I'm I'm not trying to, I'm trying to just be the type of, I'm trying to be the thing that attracts the thing that I want. And if I'm not attracting it, and I need to figure out what's happening internally, right? Yeah, man, you a cold brother. All right, so you <laughs> so you got one other thing going on. What I mean, one other thing that I at least came on my radar. I'm sure you got plenty going on. But so, man, let's talk about this doctorate program, man. Are you still you still working this out? Yeah. So um, I'm at the end of it. So so back in like back in 2009 2010, I was like, um, I was like, what? who do I want to be in 20 years? Yeah. Right? And I started kind of like mapping out who I wanted to be in 20 years. And I was like, man, I want to, I, I want to be, I want to, I want to get to know how change happens, how yeah. organizational change happens. Yeah. And I started looking for a doctorate program and it was crazy because I could not find a doctorate program that fit my needs, but also gave me the space to kind of like write the dissertation that I thought that I needed to write. So, you know, I, I was like looking around and then I put it down for a couple of years. And in 2017, 2017, um, the space just opened up for me. And um, I had a, um, had a family member who was, a professor at USC um, and so was telling me about how USC has this initiative to really um, expand their expand the doctoral program that they had been building out yeah and so um, they invited me to apply wow. and so I was like oh okay so I applied and I got in and I was like oh well, this is it and so it's perfectly tailored for me so I started the program in 2000 end of 2017 beginning of 2018 um, and I did my, my, um, my proposal defense uh, last year, and I do my final defense in the next month. So right. in the next month, I'll be wrapping up the program in the next month. I finished the writing, the principal writing of my dissertation. It's approved, my chair is on board, and, um, and I just um, basically, I have, to, I, have to submit, I have to submit one more draft 
and then in I think I my my doctoral degree confers in October. So yeah. Once it's conferred, it's conferred. Conferred, it's conferred. All right, listen. Are you going to update the social media handles, man? Are you going by Dr. Keith, Dr. White, Esquire? <laughs> like what? You know, I, I I love to see when brothers get get these uh, added letters, but I don't know I don't, how much it means to you. It doesn't. So the the the, the letter. The letters don't mean anything without application, and so yeah. I think that I think that um, you know it'll it'll give maybe it'll give me some more credibility, you know, throwing some letters behind the name. But I I think that um, I think it's a lot of work to do. So, okay, well yeah. hold on, we we about to pivot here, but I'm just thinking about you said where you want to be in 20 years. That's why you went after the program. You wanted to see learn about organizational change. So then the question becomes, where do you want to apply that? You you know is that applied on a college campus? Is that applied as a nonprofit consultant, a CEO of a of a nonprofit? Like where do you apply this this theory of organizational change? Because with the PhD, you've added something to the field somewhere. Right. So I think that um, it's a I think that I want to uh, attack the field of study. The field of study is um, there. Well, there's this concept right that nonprofits inherently inherently do good work and so they should they should receive donations mm -hmm. and so i kind of want to knock the framework off of that concept and say that philanthropy is a tool of oppression right because as long as i keep you thankful for what i'm giving you for what i'm handing to you you never really pay attention to what you deserve and so ah, you reckon me go ahead man so so i want to i want to kind of reframe the conversation around nonprofit work so that it's not seen as donations but as an investment and so now when you invest in a nonprofit you expect a return on your investment and your return on investment right should be tied to the social good as well as the financial return but that financial return is not the gorging, the gorging of profits, that financial return is really about sustainability. How do we create sustainable models for nonprofits to exist on par with big for-profit corporations and create a new model for how, how we value systems, how we value each other, how we value the place of exchange, the place of human exchange. And I think that, so as a field of study, Right, and I'm you know I'm talking broad based, right? But as a field of study, the idea is to go into the marketplace and kind of like revolutionize how nonprofits are looked at, and that may be through a consulting. I don't know if that if that means consulting with nonprofits or consulting with for profits. I don't exactly. know what that, I don't know if it means that, or if it means going into an education an institution because the the the, the biggest the biggest um, the biggest endowments are at these institutions, right? Mm -hmm. What are they doing with these? What are they doing with these? With these endowments? Your, your, your Harvards, right? Right. They're, these are billion-dollar endowments, Emory. right? So maybe taking maybe taking a look at at their endowments and saying, what are you doing to create sustainable models of educational growth, equity, fairness? Yeah. What are you committed to? So yeah. Man, that's a that's a tall order, especially going after the the institutions, uh, educational institutions. But I would also look at me. I'm trying to give advice over here, man. A, a lot of a lot of but I feel like a lot of businesses, man, they they have millions of dollars and they don't know how to they don't know how to navigate those dollars in terms of contributing, contributing them to nonprofits outside of this idea of the outward face recognition and also they don't understand the the true ROI, like you said. So I flipped the script. I actually uh, one of my fundraisers, you know, the, was uh, we do the breakfast, and it was the ROI breakfast. But my ROI was all focused on the return of return on the impact, opposed to return on the investment. And it's really showing that that these dollars sustain X, Y, and Z. These dollars led to. It's almost like positioning them to be. Uh, venture philanthropists like they understand venture capitalists you know on this side but now you can be a philanthropist and still have be a venture venture philanthropist and like just double up 
blah 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 long story this added to the podcast yo if you in nonprofit, then talk to us leave a comment we'll answer your questions give Keith the reason to come back <laughs> right and then, but there's, there's also there's also the this the 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 print the uh concept of impact investing so yeah. impact investing as a capitalized term is um a very specific thing and i found through my research right i found that impact investing provides the same returns as traditional investments. And so, but we can talk about that. That's probably another Thanks. conversation. Man, I, listen, I need to learn from you. I need to read your dissertation. I may need a, I'm not may, I need a mentor because uh, that, that PhD is definitely on my radar, man. Uh, you know, sometimes, at least I have to do one or two things at a time. So, uh, yeah, you, you've given me a lot of hope, man, honestly, in this conversation, just about how to broach the idea of going back to school, completing my master's and things of that nature. Master's is done, so up next is that. So I appreciate it. So I'll be keeping up with you in that path. Man, let me pivot here real quick. Um, I'm just thinking about, like, you're clearly, I hate using this term, I'm going to use it for the sake of this conversation. You're woke, man. You understand, you're informed, you're civically engaged. Uh, you know, you have a pulse of what's happening locally in our, com in your, in our country, in your community. How does that translate down to the type of conversations that you have to have that you started having with your daughters as of March? Not to say that, you know, as a black father, I'm sure conversations are always happening. You're, I'm sure you're always talking to them about values. But going back to this idea of pivoting, how have you pivoted in your talks with your daughter uh, post COVID, post the, the racial climate? I mean, we're in a pandemic. We have race wars going. We got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. How, how are you I mean, talking to five daughters about this? So I think that, um, well, one, I'm, I'm listening more than I'm talking. Most okay, of the that's time, good. Because right? um, they're closer, you know. They're, they're, they're closer to what's happening than I am. Because... You know, they're on social media with friends. They're, you know, looking at pop culture and they're embracing, they're imbibing all of these different things. So I spent a lot of time listening, listening to them. I will say that um, we had a big scare with COVID. So I got, I got sick in March and, um, you know, the COVID symptoms were like, kind of like whatever, like they, they were bad, like, you know, it's a, it's like a depression and it's a, um, I had COVID pneumonia. That was pretty bad, but I had some side effects that were really bad. I had, um, I had some heart failure. And wow. so I was, um, I was jammed up for a little while. So my wife was taking care of all the kids. I was in the hospital. And then when I was released from the hospital, um, I was in quarantined in the basement. So the first month, you know, I didn't even have any contact with the kids the first month of lockdown because I was um, hospitalizing in quarantine. So then coming out of it, it was like, I'm catching up with the world a little bit and I'm catching up with their world. So I spent a lot of time listening. Then as I kind of got back to like work, you know, I had, you know, a bunch of stuff that I had to like catch up on with work. I started involving them in these conversations and involving them in the work. Um, and so um, that's how the conversations have been, have been developing. Th then, you know, we, we've been a protest family, right? In 2016, we took our kids to North Dakota to, to protest the Dakota pipeline. Um, you know, we, we, we always take our kids to protest. Yeah, I saw, I saw when you rented the RV, you guys drove across country. When was that? Is that the same situation? 2016 or 17? 2016, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, so we've been, like, we've, we've been a protest family. So these, the conversation around police violence, around what happened to Breonna Taylor, around what happened to Sandra Bland, Eleanor Bumpers, George Floyd, these are constant conversations that we have. Um, so our conversation didn't change um, when, when, when the, the latest, the latest um, wave of protests started. But I will say that the energy around the conversations changed. Yeah. And, I, and so what we started to do is we started to try to pay attention a lot more 
to what was driving that energy and what was driving um, the current conversations. And so as we went out to protest, we saw that um, a lot of white people were becoming much more educated mm -hmm. about the issue and they were educating one another. That doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that, um, well, let me just back up. But we also saw white people that we clearly have problems with protesting. And so we were like, I, you know, we need to be careful in this moment to make sure that we understand that when something is a trend and when something's popular, it's easy to do. That's not necessarily a protest, that's a performance. Now, when you become disruptive to the status quo and when you do something that where people are not cheering you on, where people are not waving, because you know when you're walking down the street and people have Black Lives Matter signs up in their windows and everybody's cheering you on, and you know it's you know it's a it's it, it's cool you know and everybody's doing it but when people are looking at you and ridiculing you right when the police are are hitting you right when they're sicking dogs on you when they're tear gassing you that's a protest and that's different and i think that it was important for us to make sure that we distinguish to the kids that you're truly going against the grain and when you're truly going against the inertia of what's happening in society and you're pushing back against things that we know are not right, are not fair, it's not gonna be comfortable and it's not gonna be fun. That's why the revolution can't be televised because the revolution is not pop culture. It's not popular. The revolution is always gonna be against what pop culture is, is, is pushing. Yeah, so uh, it, it makes more sense now while you used the term earlier, you said, uh, I don't, did you say you're raising disruptors, system disruptors? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. that, because that's what protesters are are about. That's what they're out to do. You know what I'm saying? And I've never heard this distinguish between performing and protesting. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think that, man, there's performance on all sides, too. You know, when you look across the type of landscape that we have, when you can get a hot picture um, and a nice IG story. Um, and I'm my, you, you're holding my feet to the fire again, man, because we still have so much work to do. And, and I'm definitely doing my part. I'm contributing uh, to the movement, man. And I've told all my friends as I've talked myself off ledges and talked many of my friends off ledges that we all have a role to play, even though our roles will look different based on our skill sets, based on uh, our resources, based on our network, based on what type of bridges that we already have where we can talk across aisles. And, you know, everyone has a role to play. And I think, uh, man, what I'm hearing is that it's an, I appreciate you doing not neglecting to engage your family in this time because especially like millennial parents, so many young parents who have kids, even between that five and 10 space. I mean, like I said, my daughter's three, but you know, they're getting left out of the conversation. And I do think that there's an appropriate way to engage them. And we have to do our due diligence to figure that out, you know? So before we told our daughter just flat out coronavirus, you know, you contextualize it like the germs. Let's just break it down to the bare, uh, to the the etymology of this 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 virus. It's a germ. It's a virus. So you start there and build up to coronavirus. Now she knows coronavirus and she knows COVID nineteen. But I, my point is, um, now you have me thinking about ways to to make sure that she gets a piece and understands a piece of what's happening contextually, you know. Well, it's important, it's important to make sure that we're not passing our, our traumas on to our children. Right. And so um, systemic oppression, racism, capitalism, corporate, corporate and, uh, you know, idolatry and all of these things, um, these are traumas that have been pushed down on us. And, you know, we have to, one, we have to accept that we are, we have been oppressed. It doesn't mean that we continue in that oppression, but we have to accept that there is a system that is oppressing upon us. And when we accept that, then we accept that it's our responsibility to push back on that oppression and make sure that we're not passing that trauma onto our children. So when we have a conversation about race, their, 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 their lens on race and their con conversation on race is going to be completely different, yeah. right? Because they come up in a different era. But it's important for us to make sure 
that they are able to fully contextualize um, what's happening in their experience with their peers and their colleagues, but then also be able to advocate for themselves in a healthy way, in a way that's not, you know, pulling on my parents' trauma, pulling on my grandparents' trauma, but being informed and I'm being informed by history. So if I'm fully informed by history, now I'm, I'm making reasonable, I'm making non-emotional decisions and how I problem solve. And I think that that's, that's a healthy place for our kids to be in. And then when we talk about the coronavirus, I think it's important. I think what you're, that's perfect, right? In, in terms of understanding that our responsibility to wash our hands and to keep good hygiene existed before coronavirus and it will exist after the coronavirus, right? Now, people are getting sick and being thoughtful and mindful about how how we might contribute to someone else being sick if we're asymptomatic or something like that is an important conversation to have with kids. And that's the conversation we're having with our kids, right? Is like the conversation around masks and being tested is that's your that's that's a that's your responsibility to the public health of your community and that's a that's part of your social contract with humanity right we all have a social contract with humanity where we we want to respect that yeah teach us keith listen my daughter (laughs) my daughter is three and she's like uh if i put my mask on can we go to target i'm like i don't know what type of kid we listen you know, most kids want to see your phone to watch Noggin and YouTube. She's like, can I see your phone to look on Target? <laughs> I'm like, you know, so we, we got to do better. We got to do right. Hey, Keith, man, before you leave me, uh, let's just let's just end on your girls, man. And like, I, I know I see, you know, that you've been able to travel the country, travel to other countries and clearly you're taking your kids across country and things like that. But just speaking to um, the dads that are out there listening, man, like how do you take your experiences, whether you're having them with your, like experiences that you've had before your kids, the positive ones especially, and like how do those experiences, you know, inform you in your fatherhood? And and I'm thinking about, you know, dads who have different resource levels, like how do how do you, how do we still get those dads to show up in the most robust way possible even if they quote unquote have limited resources you know they may not be able to take their kid to canada but i don't know maybe you live in nashville and you can take your kid to memphis like so i'll i'll say this um and this is something where 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 my my wife has held me accountable to we've we've done we've taken the trips international to other countries africa and all of that um but where where I've had the most enriched experience is when I put the phone down and just paid attention. And it didn't matter where we were. That's and powerful. I think that, and I would say that for dads, like it, that's a, it's a tough, it's a, the, 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 the wage disparity or the, 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 the privilege disparity um, in terms of how you spend and what you can spend is real. Like, I don't want to ignore that. Right. Like, the the idea of taking your kids out of the country or doing something like that is is a, is a powerful concept um but that's not the aspirational concept i think what's aspirational is the quality of time right i i remember my we i didn't leave the country until i was an adult but i've got the best father in the world and m- my most meaningful, important, and most powerful moments with, with him were sitting on the couch in our apartment in Brownsville, New York, without money, without anything of you know material, but just sitting on the couch and him listening to me, him laughing with me, him joking with me, and him have, me having his full attention. That's one of the most, and then one of the, the second most powerful thing that happened is when I had my first heartbreak. High school girlfriend broke my heart and I didn't know what to do with myself. And he stood with me in a parking lot. I cried, he hugged me, 
and we stood there for 30 minutes and I was just crying and he was just hugging me and holding me. That was the most, that, there's nothing, there is nothing, no trip. There's no monetary gift. There's no sneakers. I don't, I don't even remember sneakers or any gifts like that, but I remember those moments. And I think that for any dad paying attention to this, like make sure that you take advantage of those moments. Teach us Keith. <laughs> Man, you know something? Let's, it's a wrap. Let's, we couldn't. That's it, y'all. Y'all not getting no more. If you're getting any more, it's going to be because he started a podcast called Teach Us Keith, where he <laughs> drops all the gems. Man, this has been a pleasure. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Keith White, Esquire, attorney. In a couple of months or so, be Dr. Keith White. Put some respect on his name. Yo, Keith, it's been a pleasure, man. I, I thoroughly enjoyed you, man. I appreciate you. You know, just want to send blessings to your entire family, your tribe, your community. Uh, I'm, I'm honored and appreciative of even. I, I'm in Nashville. You're in, you know, you're in Brooklyn, but to know that there are men like you, dads, husbands, brothers like you that are still in the trenches, man. You know doing this work for the nonprofit community, the mission-driven community, you know, saving the lives of, uh, advocating for black and brown boys and girls with, with that work and still aspiring, man. It's, you know, listening to you today, it's like, you know something, you, you, you think you arrive in a place and you realize that you still have so much further to go and to see that you've been able to do it with so much joy, intentionality, without losing sight of your the foundational thing of family and fatherhood is amazing. So I just want to sing some of your praises before I let you go out of here, man. Oh, man, thank you. I appreciate that, brother. Yeah, for sure. So you've been listening to Fatherhood is Dope, the podcast. It's your guy, Aaron McGee. Yo, I always tell y'all, man, do that thing y'all do when y'all find something you like. You screenshot it and you send it on over to somebody. So make sure you you download the podcast. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, I appreciate you. Thank you guys for being so loyal and so faithful. And if you are new to the page on YouTube, make sure that you click that subscribe button and share the podcast, man. This fatherhood is dope. Real men doing our part every day. That's dope. It don't get no better. Peace.